This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, everybody, welcome into the Salt City Hoop Show. We just barely lied to you. The show is not going to be two hours. It's going to be about a half-hour, 40-minute-long podcast. Basically, we've got the number eight team in the country, the Utah Basketball Utes, taking on their Pac-12 opponent this Thursday on during our normal showtime. So we're recording a podcast just so you don't miss your jazz fix uh, this week. So... Uh, I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops ESPN, true hoop affiliate of the Utah Jazz. If you're listening to the show, you probably already knew that by now. Ben Dowsett couldn't join me this week. So on the other line, we have Clark Schmutz, um, who I've done a podcast for with years before I joined Salt City Hoops. And, and I'm excited to announce that he's going to be writing for Salt City Hoops um, starting as soon as today. I think we're going to have an article uh, published by him on the site. So Clark, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Andy? I'm doing stellar. So we've got a lot to talk about in Jazzland, and I want to get into it. But first of all, uh, thank you so much for joining me and doing this podcast with me today. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. I love it. You're actually it, it actually worked out. This is my one day of the week off, so I could do it. And um, I am always willing to talk about the jazz with one of my favorite jazz talker abouters. <laughs> that's, that's the kindest possible word for me, believe me. All right, well, I, I think the biggest storyline right now in, in Jazzland is this Rudy Gobert and his Cantor situation. And in particular, Rudy Gobert's pretty clearly taken a leap that I, I don't think many people, even, even the hardcorest of Jazz fans, expected for him so soon. And so I, I kind of want to talk about that situation and go into um, you know, what the Jazz should do and what the Jazz can do as far as their center position goes. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so first, I, I put together some of the stats. Basically, the first question is, you know, who should be starting, right? Like, in in a in a empty universe, in, in a vacuum, where, who should be starting at the center position? You know, and especially with the combination of players that the Jazz currently have, where does this work out? So, and I've got some stats, of course, because, as you know, I'm a total nerd. Uh... So Rudy Gobert's ESPN real plus minus, and this is kind of an adjusted plus minus stat that takes into account how the Jazz perform better or worse on the floor, uh, depending on his teammates that he's playing with and uh, adjusted for the quality of his opponents that he's playing against as well. And that, sh- that stat shows, just like the eye test does, that uh, Rudy Gobert is helping the team significantly when he's on the floor, and Ennis Cantor is actually the second worst center in the league um, helping hurting his team by an average of 3.69 points per 100 possessions uh, while he's on the floor. Meanwhile, Rudy Gobert is 2.28 positive. So, and, you know, just by playing Rudy Gobert over Ennis Cantor in a vacuum, I think the stat essentially says that you get about five points better. Does that sound crazy to you? No, not at all. I think it might It might be. I love real uh, um, just a plus minus. I love that stat. I just I, I can't wait for the day when we find – a stat that really incorporates what a player does for their team. But I think this past test, um, Rudy Gobert is really good, and there are some issues with starting him and playing him, but there's no doubt that he just affects the overall team and obviously the defense uh, quite a bit when he's on the floor. But it doesn't sound crazy. 
especially with the things we've seen with Josh Smith trade and some of these players. Um, analytics is getting a little bit of a pat on the back and being put on the pedestal and, and getting a chance to say, um, you know, I told you so in a few instances, and I think this is one of them. Yeah, I mean, we've seen kind of this happen where a, a team gets rid of a kind of an inefficient offensive player, adds in a presence, uh, someone who's a presence kind of on both ends of the floor and, and succeeds a lot better. I mean, just to throw more stats at you, so the defensive rating with can, with sorry with Gobert on the floor is a lot better. It's about 11 points uh, per 100 possessions better. The offense gets about five points worse, but in the end, you know, net, you've got a six-point gain there when Rudy Gobert is on the floor compared to Enes Kanter. I, I think that basically sums the situation up, right? Like, the Jazz are significantly better on defense when Rudy Gobert plays compared to Enes Kanter, and a little bit worse on offense, but not enough to make up for the gigantic defensive difference. Yeah, and the other thing to consider, um, I don't know if you remember this discussion, Kevin Pelton is kind of the person who's led the charge on this stat and, and its introduction on ESPN. And when, when he unveiled it last season, he had a discussion with David Locke about it, and what they kind of concluded was that um, offenses are kind of predicated by wing players and point guards. I don't know if you remember this conversation, that defenses are kind of, you know, spearheaded by or definitely spearheaded by the big men. And so I think it's kind of unfair sometimes to put an offensive load on big men and kind of sometimes unfair to put defensive loads on on the little guys. But in the Jazz case, we have, especially when Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors have been playing, I mean, that's potentially one of the best defenses in the NBA. Um, I don't know if you if you have those numbers, but I think even Derek Favors' real plus minus uh, numbers have improved steadily over the last 10 or 12 days, too. Yeah, he's actually a positive now um, in terms of real plus minus, so that's that's encouraging as well. And I, I think that – I mean, I'm honestly surprised at how well this Favors-Gobert lineup has worked out. I, I, I kind of wanted Quinn Snyder to try it, and I wasn't sure if it would work out either way. Um, but it, it seems like the offense is good enough, and then the defense has just been great. Derek Favors has been able to keep up with opposing power forwards of all shapes and sizes, and it, it really has worked out a lot better than the Derek Favors-Ennis Cantor um, you know, combination by, again, about 11 points per 100 possessions. A, a huge difference. I mean, that's, that's the difference between being one of the worst teams in the league and being, a honestly, a playoff team in the West. Yep. I mean, that's really the question at this point, Andy, is if you take the team that we've had the last two weeks and just started the season over where they were at, I mean, how what's their record right now, you know? They're probably, yeah. you know, battling around 500, maybe a little below, um, would have some definite deficiencies. And that's the question, is this a team that can, you know, put together a good stretch of 12 games, or could they do that over 20 or 30 or 40? But um, I think that this Rudy Gobert, I almost want to call it an accident. Like you said, I mean, we just didn't see it coming. It wasn't planned for, and it just kind of happened because of some circumstances. But I think it has possibly changed the future, and or at least the direction of the franchise. Um, ultimately, the question is, who should be starting? I think the easy answer, and the answer that nobody can refute, is that Gobert and Favors is going to help the Jazz be better in the future and win more games. But it's just it's it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I, I hear from when I when I talk to the players and I talk to the coaching staff. It's like, yeah, I mean, Rudy Gobert's done this. First of all, they've only played about 200 minutes together, Favors and Gobert, so it's not like a lineup that's played a ton together. You still have some small sample size issues, but I, I think on the court it's clear that it's working out, so I, I guess I'm less concerned with those sort of statistical issues than normally. Um, and then I, I also think that 
there's this idea that Rudy Gobert still has a lot to develop. In fact, so I asked Quinn Snyder yesterday about this, and in particular how the Cantor-Gobert um, pairing compares to the Favors-Gobert pairing. And let's go ahead and play that clip really quick. You know, Rudy's been playing well. I think we've got to be careful not to, you know, Rudy's arrived, you know, as a player. He, he's arrived in a lot of ways, but he's got a long way to go, too. I think that's true of all our guys. And Rudy, you know, one of the reasons Rudy's improved so much is because he's been hungry. And I think you can say the same about Derek and Ennis. So um, I think yes is the answer to that question. And those guys, you know, need to play to each other's strengths the same way, you know, Ennis and Fave have or Rudy and Fave have. I, I thought it was interesting there that I asked a question about Cantor and Gobert, and he immediately goes to the Rudy Gobert side of the equation. You know, is not looking at how those guys would play together, but it's just looking at how Rudy Gobert needs to progress. And, and that he still feels like there's so much to go. I, I honestly think he just wants to use the starting position as, as kind of a, a dangling carrot for Gobert to continue to work after, just so that he does improve some of the, the secondary skills in his game, like, you know, screen setting, like rolling on the pick and roll, you know, these kind of small things that could really help him become like an amazing, honestly, a star level player in the future. I don't know who's to blame. I don't know which <laughs> player in the past hurt the Jazz like an ex-girlfriend, but they make no qualms about the fact that they just don't want to give their young people a lot at first. Like they they don't want to just have entitled players and give it to them. They, they don't try to hide that fact. I was just reading some old Dennis Lindsay quotes, and he said the same thing about Dante Exum. I mean, what does Dante Exum have to do? The entire team could be injured, and, you know, Coach Snyder might start, um, you know, Jeremy Evans at the shooting guard rather than Dante Exum. I know he did start him, but, you know, there's just this obvious uh, belief within the organization that you have to have, you call it a dangling carrot or some kind of incentive to help young players grow and want to get better. I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. It might be brilliant. It might be the right thing, but... Something happened in the past where they do not want to become the Cleveland Cavs or any of these franchises that kind of become run by the team or have entitled players. Um, so it, it is interesting. I think it's a very um, deliberate thing the Jazz are doing right now to try to kind of, um, like you say, to, to have incentives for guys like Rudy Gobert, Dante Exum, and any of the young guys so that they don't get too much too quick. Well, and it's weird because, like, they have had a different general manager during these times and they have a new coach now and so you know it's not like this is coming down from the Miller organization that thou shalt not start young players but clearly there's like this organizational philosophy that's that stayed consistent even as Dennis Lindsay has taken over and you know even before him even as Kevin O'Connor took over where uh, they look at I mean everyone uses this John Stockton example but quite frankly that really only happened once right 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 but it is, it's a great example, and it's very convenient. You know, it sounds good. It's a good soundbite for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you that, like, they worry about that a little bit too much. And I, and I do see that, and I, and I think, honestly, a lot of it is just avoiding Ennis Cantor being upset because it's, it's true. You know, if you go out for an injury and all of a sudden you're not starting anymore and your minutes are significantly decreased, it's not really your fault, and it is kind of a bummer. And and nobody's been jerked around as a player more than Ennis Cantor over the last three years. And and I think that Jazz player, or I think that the Jazz coaching staff knows that, and and kind of wants to not screw him over, for lack of a better term. 
and in all honesty, I'm fine with him starting uh, on the return. On the flip side of that, though, what has Ennis Cantor ever done to be a starter? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, he he kind of became a default starter after waiting in the wings for so long, and if that's all it takes to be a starter is just waiting a few years, maybe that is the plan, but, but Ennis Cantor's play hasn't really ever um, garnered in a way that you could argue Rudy Gobert's play has kind of changed the way the team plays. Um, Ennis Cantor just be kind, kind of just waited his turn, and I guess it's his turn, and I'm fine giving him a shot. I think that's a, appropriate, and it's definitely a, a jazz philosophy, but at what point... Um, you know, at what point do you say who earns to be a starter? Is it the, if it's the best players or the people that give you the best chance to win, then it's not going to be in this canter long term. I think anybody would agree with that. Yeah, I I think the evidence is there that that's you know clearly not going to. Uh, Ennis Cantor doesn't have isn't a winning player right now, and and that's not to say that he can't be. I mean, he's only twenty two, twenty three, whatever he is. Uh, but I, I just think. That yeah, I, in the end, if you look at who does the little things better out of Rudy Gobert and Ennis Cantor, it, it's Rudy Gobert, and, and not by an insignificant amount. So I was thinking about this last night watching the Golden State Warriors because it was it was a little bit evident on the eye test, and I mean the Warriors are just they're fantastic, and they'll they they create mismatches and problems all over the court, and just some of those series they were making in the third quarter were ridiculous. But it, it reminded me of watching this team earlier when, you know, you had three people who kind of struggled defensively in the starting lineup, and I won't even name names. We don't even need to talk about the three. But it just really throws the entire team off balance. So if somebody is having a difficult time guarding their position, it means that other people have to play a little harder or cheat a little bit of, you know, away to that player. And it just ends up throwing the defense off to where, you know, a guy that, that, that might be a good defender really leaves an open shot to, to his person. And Rudy Gobert kind of does the opposite thing, the fact that he's back there. I mean, when you just watch, it is incredible how much uh, tougher the entire five-man unit plays. Um, and so that's, that's not a slam to anybody, but I do think, you know, it's just one of those things where if, if you get some, as uh, Dennis Lindsay would say, some non-plus defenders on the floor together, it really just makes it almost impossible for the whole team to guard as a unit. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing and dealing with right now. And, and I think we've seen that in other NBA teams, too. I mean, obviously the Spurs are the model for everything, but you know they've kind of shown, as well as a lot of other teams, you look at Atlanta, for example, you look at this year's Golden State, that if you've got a five-man, you look at Portland even, you, if you've got a five-man unit that doesn't have any weaknesses and you know doesn't have that weak spot all of a sudden you take another step as an organization maybe even a- above and beyond the skill level of the players that you have exactly i mean you look at the lineups and that's why uh you have people even like Harrison Barnes last night and some people that aren't necessarily that good when he's put in a group with really good defenders like Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson all of a sudden he looks like a really good player and i think that's happened the Jazz were starting you know, Joe Ingles and playing Elijah Millsap a lot of minutes. These are guys that aren't necessarily good, but the team was being really successful because Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert were manning the, the paint, and uh, Gordon Hayward does his thing. I think you could call him an average-to-plus defender at his position as well. And, um, you know, you could almost say you could put some other guys in there and, and that they could be successful in that realm. I mean, that's what we need to find out. We need a larger sample size like you you've seen but but i think uh i think we discovered something over the last 10 days uh, a foundational defensive uh group that that you could put almost anybody with and 
and have a, a plus defending group. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think this is kind of emphasized by just looking at only last night's plus minus, which I know is like ridiculously unfair, just one game plus minus. You know, whoever was in during that Steph Curry sh- shooting three run by the Warriors, you know, is going to have a bad plus minus. But despite that, Gobert was a plus six, Ennis Cantor was a minus 27 last night. And it's that tells me that it's more than just that three-minute run in which they outscore the Jazz by 12 points. That tells me it's it's a game-wide problem. Yeah, it was a matchup problem specifically last night for Ennis Cantor. He just didn't really have anyone to guard on the floor. He can't get out and guard the people at the three-point line. I think it's, it's fair to say that that's a big struggle for him, and I think last night was kind of a bad matchup. It is completely unfair to talk about plus-minus in one-game scenario, especially last night, but it's also completely fun. And, uh, <laughs> Fun to talk about. So yeah, and like, that. and I, I don't think that it lied last li- last night. You know, I, no. I think if it if it backs up what your eye test is telling you and what you know those matchups kind of logically are are telling you, I, I think it's a fair stat to use. So anyway, I I want to ask, what do you do with Ennis Cantor at this point? I mean, we're let's see, we're a little bit more than a month away from the trade deadline, and so you know you could look to trade him. Obviously, he's a restricted free agent this offseason, so you could look to match an offer for him. Uh, uh, let's talk about the trades first, I guess. Do you see any trade possibilities? That you know, What would the Jazz want back? What would teams be willing to give up? What's his value with two months left to go on his contract? I mean, it's really hard. Uh, I think most fans are pretty pretty keen on this. It's just there isn't a lot of value for a restricted free agent with half a year left before they hit the free mar- the the free agency market, because other teams don't want to trade for a guy and have you know a question mark on the future of his contract, or what what it's going to be. Um, so I don't think the Jazz are are going to be able to get much, but I do think there is precedence for this. Um, if you look back at the Oklahoma City Thunder, for instance, they had a top pick that was a good player, or at least showed some promise, and uh, they ended up dealing him, and that would be Jeff Green. I believe they dealt him, you know, the trade deadline before he came up for a contract extension and got Kendrick Perkins and uh, Chris Stitch back. Um, now, that's not a lot of value, and especially the, the Kendrick Perkins we know, um, that doesn't seem like a very good trade. But at the time, it was more of trading a guy with some potential and future uh, promise for a guy that maybe wasn't that flashy or that good, but that was a veteran who could kind of come in and stabilize the team. And I think Kendrick Perkins was okay for the Thunder for a year or two, which is part of the reason he kind of became a tragedy there in Oklahoma City. But I think that's probably the type of trade you're looking for. I know the Jazz would love to get some picks or some hot young talent or something, but you might be able to deal them to a team that just isn't trying to win, that maybe has a veteran piece moving forward. Um, where that trade is, I mean, there, we could make some speculation all day. I, I think there are some trades. I think there will be some options for the Jazz to, to trade Ennis Cantor if that's what they decide to do. But, um, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I also think that you could potentially sell him to a contending team as a bench big, as a bench scoring big. You know, like the Clippers could really use Ennis Cantor because he'd be, he'd be a huge upgrade over Big Baby Davis and Hito Turkoglu and... Uh, I don't even know who else is their big man right now, but you know it's it's awful. Um, it's just they literally have nothing else to trade. You know they have they've traded all their first round picks that they can. They've traded most of their second round picks and their best young player is Reggie Bullock, who has like an eight per right now. So that one's out of the question. But I think you could do something like that. So I I came up with a couple possibilities. Um, just kind of looking around the league, the one I. Uh, 
I'll go with the one I like least, I guess. Uh, first okay. is the Phoenix Suns. I, you know, we've seen them make a move to acquire Brandon Wright. Um, you know, I think they could conceivably look to add more to their big man rotation. Uh, something like Gerald Green plus their late first rounder. Um, it, it's something I could see them doing. I mean, Gerald Green's an expiring free agent, so basically they'd be saying, you know, here's this player who's expiring in two months, have a free look at him and, and a first-round draft pick. And in the end, we get another young big man to see if we can make something out of. I, I honestly think that Cantor and Hornacek could work well in Phoenix, too. Yeah, I do wonder what their relationship was, and that's an interesting um, you know, destination, especially with Hornacek, who's worked with Ennis Cantor, and they do need some some size. Um, I think that's kind of the, the idea, though, and, and I don't know what Jazz fans would feel about that, you know, a late first-rounder. Phoenix might not need all their first-rounders, especially if they end up acquiring some from the Lakers in the next couple of years. Um, but, yeah, I think something like that makes some sense. Um, it's somebody who would come to the Jazz and not expect to start or play right away, but they could possibly add some athleticism and three-point shooting. I think Gerald Green would actually have a chance to play here. Phoenix has a few players. You know, I think they probably like D.J. Tucker a little bit more for the long term, but, but I, I definitely think there's some some possibility there um i've also considered you just have to make the contracts work too right um and and i think it would be interesting that'd be something that the jazz could do is to clear up even even by trading on his canter what it could possibly do if they didn't bring long-term money back is free up some some money this summer which could prove to you know be be useful um for some cap space i've thought about i think toronto's in the same boat as somebody that could maybe use an extra big body. They only have Valanchunas and Amir Johnson are giving, um, does Tyler Hansborough still play for them? He does. Yeah. Uh, who their backup big is. So I think that's a possible destination. I don't know who they would trade back or if they have anything, but I know that, uh, fields, Landry fields has maybe a, an expiring contract and, and that could be a possible destination as well. Yeah. I've also heard Terrence Ross, although I think the jazz would need to give something up in that. Um, but I, that was something that an, another fan I I just talked to around the league um, mentioned as, as a possibility. You know, maybe they'd take a, a wing young player for a big young player, both of them expiring, and, and just see, you know, see if a change of scenery helps either player. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there are some trade possibilities out there. Um, It'll be an interesting month from now. Do you think? Do you think the Jazz will trade on this canter? I I think in the end they probably don't get enough from the other teams. I, I mean I, I think they'll definitely try, but I think ultimately they'll decide maybe they they don't get enough from the other teams around the league, um, and honestly would rather have the cap space or try to do a sign and trade or something in the summer, which which I don't think will work out and will be kind of a a waste of an asset so to speak, but. In the end, you can only take what other teams are giving you. Uh, the only right. other the, the trade I like best still for Ennis Cantor is to the Denver Nuggets straight up for Wilson Chandler, um, who's not like a huh. great player, uh, but he's only got a 13 PR right now. But I, I, I think he's the sort of player that could you could look at. He's basically he's got a contract for this year and next. Next year is only $2 million guaranteed out of his, I think it's $7.5 million um, salary. So... You could either waive him and get that cap space. You could trade him uh, to a team that needed cap space to do something, or you could, you know, keep Wilson Chandler if he if he does fit out. And I, I think he's the kind of wing 
that can shoot a little bit, that can defend a little bit, that you know would just be a big upgrade over the Joe Ingles, Elijah Millsaps of the world. I do. I I like that trade. I like Wilson Chandler. I think he's a decent a decent player and would actually fit in well here. I know the Clippers are really trying to consider trading for him. Um, why would Denver nothing. want Ennis Cantor? <laughs> because they just got rid of Timothy Mozgov, right, for their for those mm-hmm. two first rounders. So I think in the end they have room in their young big man rotation, which it, you know admittedly is big, and they've got uh, Nurkic, they've got uh, Javale McGee still. I mean, they do have a lot of young bigs who need development, and I. But you know, I, I think Ennis Cantor gives them another chance to have a successful player work out of that. Okay, I like I like that deal. I could definitely. That's that's pretty tempting. I I mean, what are the Jazz's goals? You know, if the, if the Jazz were to make a trade like that, what are they? What are their goals for the rest of the year? I think is is kind of a question. And I, I think we'll find out a lot about the Jazz coming up to the trade deadline here because we need to find out exactly what they want to do. Do they want if they made a trade like that, for instance, I think they would be writing and saying, Well, we just want to see how successful this team can be with a favors go bear lineup and, you know, some veteran shooting or veteran leadership of the wing and, you know, really make a push to kind of evaluate. I mean we're not making a push for the playoffs, obviously. I right. don't think at, in the same token we're necessarily trying to lose games to get a draft pick. Um, it's going to be an interesting time of evaluation. Maybe they want to evaluate Ennis Cantor more. Maybe after the trade deadline they do move him to uh, a bench role or something like that. But um, I think that's kind of what the Jazz are, are having to ask themselves for the rest of the season is what, what do we want and what do we want to see. Yeah, and I, I think that would be kind of what you – the idea would be is if you know if you don't have an Escanter there, what does the offense and defense look like? Where do you stand then? And then in particular, what acquisitions can you make over the summer that then round this team out into a contending for a playoff spot sort of team? Speaking of which, right. you, you have this article that you're you're going to be posting on Salt City Hoops about this overall rebuilding plan. I, I wanted to ask you about it a little bit just because I, I think it's I think it's interesting, right, to kind of take a step back and look at how did this rebuilding process start and at what point, honestly, does it end? At what point are we ready to say, okay, we're ready to be good now? I think that's really the question. That's the question I kind of wanted. Sometimes when I write an article, I just come up, I just have a question that I want to be answered and, and, I, and I look at some some evidence and try to figure something out. My question with this article is exactly like what you said. What is Dennis Lindsay's plan? And and part of the nice thing about Dennis Lindsay and one of the things I love about him is he is so refreshingly honest. So this was super lame, but I ended up going back and reading and listening to basically every interview he's given over the last 18 months on the on the subject and just, you know, thinking about it. This is so embarrassing for me to admit because uh, that's just such a dumb Nerd. thing to do. But what I did is I, I went and listened, and I think – if you put the if you put the pieces together, you get kind of a clear idea of what Dennis Lindsay's plan is. Now, um, I think uh, that there was a plan at least put in place to keep the money so clear that if they wanted to, they could sign all their young guys to extensions. And I think that was probably at least one of the plans. Um, and if you listen to Dennis Lindsay, he's pretty clear that the plan was to get star, develop stars, uh, accumulate assets, trade up in the draft if they can for the player they want and need. And then he says this several times to augment in free agency. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, the stepping stone. And where Ennis Cantor fits in that 
I don't know. I think at one point they wanted to sign him long-term and have him be a piece, but, but with all these situations we talked about for the last several minutes, I, I don't know where Dennis Lindsay fits in that. But I do believe that when the time comes that the Jazz you know, feel like they're a competitive or close to competitive playoff team that they are going to either trade for or acquire free agents that kind of help and boost that. I don't know what level of free agents exactly he's talking about, but it has been really interesting to see kind of the consistency of his answers and how he, he plans to rebuild the team and uh, and things like that. He's been fairly consistent and had kind of a, a plan set in place. Yeah, and I, I think that's basically Dennis Lindsay's best asset is, is knowing what the plan is for this franchise and, and how to accomplish it. I mean, if you look at all of the moves over the last 18 months, they all fit that long-term strategy. And I, I even asked him about it uh, in his uh, press conference, I believe it was two weeks ago when, when Alec Burks was out for the season. I asked him, you know, what's your mindset going into this trade deadline period? And it's clear that he's still thinking long-term. You know, he's, he said, you know, I, I won't hesitate to make a move that would fix a, a short-term hole, but only if it didn't hurt the long-term, the, the 12 to 24-month time frame is, is what he said. And so I, I think that's still what the Jazz have in mind, but, you know, 12 to 24 months is very different than 24 to 36 months, which I think is where the Jazz were last season. I mean, it, it, it's clear in my mind that he's still he's moving along in this plan. Correct. And if you ask, um, so if you talk to a guy like, what David Locke's been kind of preaching, if you've listened to his interviews and the things he's talked about is kind of this Washington Wizards rebuild where he's talked about Exum being our piece, you know, our John Wall and our 2015 pick uh, being kind of our Bradley Beal and then Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors in three or four years from now being our Marching Gortat and uh, Nene. And if you, if you take that, I mean, the Jazz aren't competing for anything for three seasons, if you look at that rebuild. And yeah. So I kind of got to thinking about that. That seems a little far or a little drastic, especially with the players we have. I mean, the Jazz are kind of in a funny situation where they're probably not going to be able to, unless they get incredibly lucky, they're not going to be able to have a top three draft pick. We're just we're not bad enough to, to be a, a top pick unless they change something with the, the draft rules. And so... Again, we're kind of, you know, facing some some no man's land. I think ultimately, if I were making the decisions, I would want to take this kind of core group of Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, Gordon Hayward, maybe Exum in a few years, um, and uh, and see what I could do by adding some shooting or some veteran presence around that, and see if we can become competitive. So I ultimately, I don't know if the plan is to compete next year or in three years or in four years, um, but I think it's definitely something jazz fans need to ask themselves and think about is how long can I stand this rebuild? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. fun right now, but if we're still a team like this two seasons from now, I might be getting, it, it might be a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I think it I, two seasons from now, especially because Gordon Hayward can opt out of that deal. And you know, if he's gone, then everything, uh, you know, everything changes. Um, I, I, I personally think that this summer is the summer that I'd like to see them make that, sort of win-now move by acquiring a free agent like a Paul Millsap, like a Draymond Green. I, I even think Danny Green would be an excellent fit with this Jazz system and roster and, and make, you know, spend, honestly, you'd have to spend eight figures in order to do it. There's no question about it uh, per year. But I, I, I think ultimately the Jazz need to take that step forward by acquiring a win-producing free agent. 
I mean, I'm right there with you. I think the Jazz should be shooting to make the playoffs, not contending for a title by any means next year, but I think if they added a piece, I mean, like I said earlier, I I do wonder if you you took this season and had Trey Burke, Gordon Hayward, I I mean, we can talk about Alec Burks, but maybe even just an acquisition or a better three-point shooter, somebody who fits a little bit better with the starting unit uh, that was ready to contribute, plus Derek Favors, plus Rudy Gobert, I mean, how many games does that team win over an 82-game season? I'm inclined to believe it would be, you know, close to playoff competitive, if not, you know, a slightly below 500 team. And with the acquisition of, of smart players, some shooting and defense around them, that you'd, you'd, you know, you'd have a playoff competitive team that was growing into their prime together. Um, so I'm with you. I would like to see that. I don't even think it needs to be a, a player of the caliber of those guys you mentioned. I do think we just need more shooting. When you look at Atlanta, like you mentioned, Atlanta doesn't have flashy, flashy players. You wouldn't have thought Jeff Teague was a great point guard uh, before this season, but they just have a great fit and guys that play together and play well, and we know that Quinn Snyder is trying to replicate that to some degree. Yeah, and and that's why I like I like the Danny Green acquisition, and basically anyone who can be that 3 and D wing. I mean, you could even look at Wesley Matthews maybe coming back to Utah as well. Um, I mean, someone who's basically able to fill that slot in in the Jazz's system is something they don't have right now, and it's abundantly clear. And I I think it's just the obvious next step for an acquisition for the Utah Jazz. I hope so. I think it's obvious too that we need another one or two more shooters in the starting lineup or or on this team, and that's actually the direction I'd like to see them is supplement with some shooting. I so. You know, two weeks ago, Paul Millsap would have been my number one free agent. Uh, I think that is a little complicated now with Rudy Gobert's emergence. I don't yeah. know if you could get away with signing him and playing him with Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors. That, that's an interesting discussion. But Wesley Matthews might be at the top of my list at this point. He fits his team really well. He'd defend. He shoots not only shoots well from three, he shoots tons of threes. He shoots right. any open threes. and. If this team could stop passing up open looks from three, uh, they would take a step in the right direction just doing that one thing. I don't think there's any question. All right, so, Clark, every week on the show we do Around the NBA, and just because we're not on the radio, I think we don't have to skip what's going on around the league. Uh, uh, Let's not skip steps, Andy. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I I wanted, first of all, and as always, do the LOL Lakers segment, because uh, if you're like me, you like laughing at the Lakers, and... Clark, I, I hope that you're one of those people, right? I love laughing at the Lakers. Good. Well, you'll be happy to know that they now officially have the third worst record in the league, which is just hilarious. Um, unfortunately, that means that they're more likely to keep their pick, which, of course, as we remind you every week, is top five protected. So uh, if it's not in that top five, it goes to Phoenix as part of the Steve Nash trade. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer if you if you want the Lakers to continue to be bad. But for right now, it's pretty fun to see them in the bottom three of the league. You know, it's it's really an interesting time in Lakerland, and I, I have I have confidence that they're going to struggle for a little while, even if they get a top pick, just because I think you know they chose to honor and pay Kobe Bryant in his last years rather than you know, accelerate the rebuild. And I think that's just a payoff that they decided to make ultimately was to be extra bad for a couple of extra years in honor to, you know, kind of uh, honor Kobe as a, as a lifetime Laker. But that's something Which they're going to have to live with and uh, yeah. be with. Which is hilarious to me. I mean, I'm. I, it's like the ultimate comeuppance. I, I love it. Anyway, sorry. Um, 
they lost 78-75 last night in one of the ugliest games of the season to the Miami Heat. Again, showing kind of how far that franchise has fallen as well. Um, and then earlier in the week got just destroyed by Damian Lillard in one of the dunks of the year. He dunked on two Lakers. I mean, if you haven't seen the video of it yet, check it out because it's, it's pretty I love demonstrative. Damian Lillard. He's fun to watch. Um, also in the NBA this week, we had two different trades. Um, the one yesterday was Jameer Nelson for Nate Robinson um, from the Celtics to uh, the Denver Nuggets. I, I think... It's interesting that the the Celtics are getting rid of these Rajon Rondo pieces so quickly. It is weird. I the Brandon Wright one makes some sense, I guess, because they got a first rounder back. I, I thought they could have gotten more, or maybe even gotten more, keeping him. Um, the Celtics have so many first round picks. I don't even think they have enough roster spots for their first round <laughs> picks in the next five years. So I'm not exactly sure if they think they're going to be able to trade up three picks in the 20s for a really good pick, um, but that trade yesterday kind of befuddled me. I don't know. Do you know? Do you have any feeling on why they did that? It didn't make sense for either team for me. But Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, the plan is Jameer Nelson helps you win games. Um, you know, he's not great, but he's he's better than nobody, better than a replacement-level point guard. And they're going to wave Nate Robinson, and basically they're going all out for the tank is what the Celtics are. I, I honestly think it's a little bit more questionable for the Nuggets. Like, are they, are they trying to win now by acquiring Jameer Nelson? Like, what's what's their end game? Well, I think that's really the big question. I guess from a Boston Celtics standpoint, it does make some sense. But, yeah, I don't I don't know how Denver, how Ty Lawson and Jameer Nelson fit together. I, I Maybe Nate Robinson is just one of those personalities they needed to get away from the team for a little while, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, Boston, talk about everybody who had a disappointing outcome of the draft and whatnot. Boston ended up, you know, losing our pick to a coin flip and ended up with Marcus Smart, who, I don't know, I mean, he's going to be definitely a good defender, if nothing more, but they they definitely need some lottery luck with all these picks coming up. Yeah, and, and maybe they get it. Um, the other trade this week was Jeff Green, also a Celtic, um, and uh, Russ Smith from the New Orleans Pelicans sent to Memphis to help bolster their playoff push. Uh, Tayshaun Prince, Austin Rivers, and a first-round pick was sent to the Celtics. And then Quincy Pondexter and a 2015 second-rounder to the Pelicans as part of that three-way deal. Um, I mean, your thoughts, I think it helps Memphis a lot and, and could, you know, potentially it's not a big move, but it gives them a lot more shooting um, and, and helps them in uh, any potential playoff series. I think on paper it's an upgrade for Memphis. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see how it fits. So Jeff Green is an interesting guy. I mentioned him in, in connection with Ennis Cantor, but I think he's the type of player to look at. Like He's been thought of as this overpaid, horrible player for so long, and then in the right context now he's going to maybe you know make Memphis a real contender. I think Ennis Cantor might have the similar career where he has the middle of his career kind of be, you know, this guy that's a little disappointing, but not that good, but okay, and then maybe later in his career figure it out. But Jeff Green, I mean, am I crazy? Like, it seems like in the middle of his career he was just thought of as this inefficient, horrible player that some teams liked and some teams wanted to stay as far away from as possible. Yeah, no, and I, I honestly think there's still this wide range of opinions about him. I I, I think him being on a contending team as, as a third piece and, you know, not 22 anymore – there, there's kind of a different way people think about young guys and veterans, right? And and whether or not that's fair is another question, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see how he fits on a Memphis roster where he's the fourth or fifth best player, everyone knows it, and you know he's he's brought in to be a hired gun, so to speak. 
Um, yeah, and in some in some degree, just older players get better. They figure it out eventually. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we're at with a guy like Jeff Green. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. Mo Williams scored 52 last night. Congratulations to the former Jazz man for breaking the <laughs> Minnesota Timberwolves' all-time scoring record, of course, previously set last year by Corey Brewer, of all people. I just love oh. who the Minnesota Timberwolves acquire and have play and, and play big minutes and score lots of points for them. It's, it's, they're a great franchise. They are. I, yeah, yeah, not but a lot to say there. Congrats to Mo Williams. Ty Corbin last night also had an interesting coaching screw-up. I believe the shot clock differential was about one to two seconds last night, uh, and um, Sacramento was down by one possession, and he didn't foul. He had his players not foul under the, the – he answered after the game that he thought that the um, – oh, who are they playing? I, why am I forgetting? Uh, the Kings were playing the Dallas Mavericks last night. Thank you, Dallas. Uh, so <clears throat> losing to Dallas by one possession, Boogie Cousins had an amazing game. And then they don't foul in the end, down one possession with the shot clock running out. I mean, it's he, Ty Corbin said he thought they might go quick, but of course no team ever would go quick in a situation when they have the ball in the lead with under 30 seconds left to go. I mean, I, I don't want to – Tyrone Corbin's just a great guy, but I think he's got some <laughs> obvious deficiencies in the head coaching. Then the problem is, is that this is the second time he's done this. He did this for the Jazz last year against the Nets. Yeah, where there wasn't enough time to foul. They were down four with 24 seconds left. He didn't foul. They asked him why. He said the same thing. I was afraid they were going to go quick. He does it again it last night. Make any he sense. ended up fouling, but they let like 12 seconds run off. I mean, it really, it probably didn't cost him the game, but it cost him a chance to win the game, which is a big deal when you're the coach. That's your job to figure those things out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's not a good thing for Kings fans at this point. They're they're unlucky with all the different coaches coaching changes and kind of personnel changes that they've had this season. It, it, I'm not sure what how I would react if I were a Kings fan. They are killing Tyrone Corbin on Twitter today, that's for sure. Fair enough. Um, and then finally, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, LeBron is back, but in the meantime, they did lose last night to the Phoenix Suns. They're now a below 500 team, which I didn't see coming at all. They're 19-20. and 20. Um, David Blatt and Kevin Love have had a little contract. Uh, I guess David Blatt said that Kevin Love wasn't a max player in the media. Um, and, and to their credit, both both parties haven't have kind of kissed and made up, so to speak. Um, but it's just interesting how poorly that team is doing. They they don't look cohesive on the floor whatsoever. They need to figure it out. I think there are some encouraging signs when you look at the advanced statistics. Some lineups have worked out pretty well, and they probably need to ride some of those lineups. I think it's also a little unfair because LeBron James has been injured. They do need some time to figure it out, but no, it doesn't look good for this year. And um, it's just a dramatic franchise that's going to lead and allow a lot of drama to come in. So it'll be an interesting story to watch for the next year, that's for sure. Yeah, Kevin Love is a free agent this summer, so if things don't go well this season, it'll be interesting to see if he stays in Cleveland. All right, well, that's all the time that we have, uh, but I want to appreciate. I want to thank you, first of all. I really appreciate it for having you join and step in for Ben um, when, he, when he couldn't do it, and, and thank you for getting your writing on Salt City Hoops. I really look forward to reading it for, for months, days, years to come. I can't promise you there will be a lot of it, but I can <laughs> promise you it will try to be quality stuff when it does come on. Perfect. Well, that's all I ask for. 
I appreciate it. Yeah, you're going to get it then. You're going to get 110% effort from this guy, that's for sure. Awesome. That, yes, that's, that's what we need. All right, well, thank you, Clark, for joining us. That's it for another Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops, the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Check us out at saltcityhoops.com. We've got new articles on the site each and every day. Um, thanks again for listening.